They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of DC, they tween all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our Low Effort, Low Quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. Uh, we have a special episode prepared for you today. We have a guest joining us in the latter half of the episode, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. And more exciting than that is it's actually going to be the high quality, low effort podcast. How come? Because I got this software on the World Wide Web that says it will make the podcast louder, take out various uh, hums oh, and wow. noises and so on. They said they use machine learning to do this. So you know it's good. Anything machine learning is good. So stay tuned for that. I obviously haven't applied the- Yeah, uh, this is the, an experimental episode in some regard. I haven't applied it yet to this. It might be good for guests because it levels out yeah. their volumes as well, Yeah, which I know uh, we've had problems with in the past. So. Yeah, everybody's always like, why is this podcast so quiet? Why am I paying money for this mm-hmm. shitty product? You guys suck. I hate you. Mm-hmm. That's what you're always saying in the comments. So we took this step for you. Yeah. And they have this concept called loudness units. Ooh. Which is really good. And it's like, yeah, loudness un- loudness units relative to system maximum or something like that. All right. So all the loudness units are negative. Zero, I guess, would be yeah. the top loudness unit. That's oh. interesting. So, you know, it's exciting, you know, just doing some real high tech shit, you know. Well, you know, Um, we're always trying to level up for you guys. uh, And we knew eventually we would become a a high effort, high quality podcast. It's still low effort, you know. It's still low effort, that's true. I didn't get a producer. I'm just got a bit of, just got a program from the World Wide Web of the internet. But you always drive us to be better, so. Well, I'm going to have a baby in a couple days, mm-hmm. have labor induced. We'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, that's exciting. In the meantime, we uh, we watched a miniseries. Oh, that's right. The Khazars. The Last Khazars. The Last Khazars. The Last Khazars. It is a, what would you, it's like a docudrama because there are like talking heads, experts, but also it's a lot of reenactment. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, it, it showed up under the documentaries tab, but I looked at all the... You know, if you're on the Netflix, it just kind of shows you previews and yeah. stuff, and it just looked like, you know, uh, prestige drama, basically. So there were no, uh, like, uh, it was just the actors doing their yeah. acting, costumes, Big you know, costumes. epic, whatever. And then when you turn it on, it's probably about, I would say, maybe a tenth interjections <laughs> yes, by experts who are kind of narrating but it is mostly reenactment so it is an interesting kind of genre bending thing because it is almost entirely like you know epic hbo the tutors type uh, thing yeah. but then there are like people who pop in and like tell you about 
facts and history and stuff. Um, we, we should say that the, the reenactment part, the narrative part, is completely bananas and like extremely uh, czar apologist. Uh, I would say highly anti-revolutionary. And, uh, and it's tough though because it's, it's a movie. It's it's a series about the Khazars. So, you know, I don't know. Like maybe that. Maybe you 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 know. Maybe it's wrong to have a series solely about the Khazars. I just think um, it's hard to really tell their story without being honest about the conditions in which they unfolded. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, it's weird, right? Because the drama is just their family and the family dynamics and so on. Um, But definitely there's tons of messages from either the experts or even interior to the show about, you know, people dying and all these wars failing and, you know, bloody Nick and all that kind of stuff. So it was there, but you don't get it dramatized, which from a, you know viewer's perspective who's just interested in like the narrative you don't get as much sympathy they're just sort of statistics you know we have the historians giving the conditions in verbal format but the only dramatization you have is basically the domestic life of the romanovs yes that's almost all of it i mean you do get an advisor coming in oh three thousand people died at the such and such you know but you get like bananas stuff like when uh the Czar marries his wife. They they all call him Nikki, mm-hmm. and they call his wife Alex. They like Alec- Alexi. They have sex, and then he calls her Mrs. Romanov. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, very weird. You have a lot of Rasputin, a lot of sex wizard stuff. Yeah, Rasputin loves to fuck. He loves to fuck, and he says the f word all the time. Mm-hmm. Every time Rasputin talks, he's like this this fucking god, this fucking Russia. I didn't pick that up. Always saying the F word as an intensifier. I didn't realize, you know, I mean, the only thing I knew about Rasputin was vaguely, I remember him mentioned in a a Disney movie of some sort. Anastasia. Um, Yes. um, I don't really understand that movie conceptually, though. (laughs) Maybe if I rewatched it now, I would get it. Oh, yeah. Um, Now that you bring it up, Anastasia is the framing device of this whole thing. That was very strange. Um, yes, no, uh, ostensibly this is all a story told in the context of trying to figure out whether this person in Germany who claimed to be Anastasia, which is one of the daughters of the last czar, uh, was really Anastasia, obviously not, obviously not, um, whatever, but that's the framing device and it's all told in flashback basically. That's so weird. They should have just kill that. Kill that. Get get that crap out of there. That's totally trash. I mean, it was there were some nice moments of that, I guess, like you get to see people hopeful or whatever, but you know. Anyways, um strange series, very strange. A lot of the I got to I cannot emphasize strongly enough. But I didn't realize that Rasputin I didn't really know, I guess, generally I had some sense from the Disney movie yeah. that he was some wizard or whatever. I didn't realize he was just like, he just loved to fuck. Yeah, he was a sex wizard and they thought he could cure their son's hemophilia somehow. Somehow those two things are connected. One of the experts in there had a theory that was, she just kind of stated matter-of-factly, whereas some of the other experts were kind of like, I don't know what was going on, you know, with the healing shit. But she was like, you know, what happened was because... uh uh, the mom believed Rasputin was, you know, a healer. That calmed her down and kept her stress low, and that, uh, you know, kept the baby, you know, from bleeding. 
I guess. I mean, like, the, yeah, the, the idea, I, I guess he was okay as long as he didn't get bumps, bruises, cuts or anything. Well, there was that, but he would get them and then Rasputin would show up and somehow the kid would get better because, of course, he's getting bumps and stuff. Yeah, and so maybe the mom was freaking out every time he got that a cut. That was implicitly... And, like, was, like, raising his blood pressure and causing him to bleed a lot. That was implicitly her theory. And then yeah. Rasputin would show up, the mother would chill out, the but kid's she, blood pressure would go down. But she just states okay. this as a matter of fact. And I'm like, I maybe. feel like you're overstepping your expert position here. I mean, I, the I other possibility is he was a real sex wizard. That's possible. And that he was actually healing the kid. Mm-hmm. This, I'm just putting that on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a theory, uh, we learned, that uh, in order to be really saved, you had to sin prodigiously. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, well, I mean, you have to repent to be saved. Redemption. You need, you, yeah. you need redemption for salvation. So you have to do bad shit. Yeah. You can't get redemption if you haven't sinned and you can't go to heaven if you haven't been redeemed. Therefore, you should sin. I like it. I think it's a clear syllogism. <laughs> bullshit. A, he's therefore, like, B, B, therefore, C. He's like, so I got to really get out there and put in my hours sinning. Yeah. And so he had orgies and stuff. Yeah, he was part of a, a monk sex cult for a while. Yeah. Uh, basically, all the shit I would make up about the royal family being involved with, they basically were actually involved with. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, but they did, like you said, they were. It, it, you do get a sympathy of sorts that is, I guess, misplaced. Um, yeah. <laughs> like they, they emphasize that the, they were the only monarch um, in which the they shared a marital bed. They slept in the same bed. I guess in every other uh, monarchy in they had Europe, own, they, they had, had bed chambers. Beds. But look, I mean, um, that's the thing. It's like in the Iliad, you get these like very tender domestic scenes with Hector. Mm-hmm. where his like helmet is so shiny it scares his baby son and he like takes it off and he like loves on his wife and stuff and it's builds sympathy for the character because it's setting it up as a tragedy mm-hmm. that noble hector has to die and the same thing is like going on narratively here where you know the narrative style giving you all these like tender domestic scenes builds up a lot of sympathy but at the same time how many proles shared beds Yes. Right. I mean, well, the yeah, proles the, are sharing beds with the whole damn family. Well, and then, and then, yeah. I mean, you. It's but you so don't get weird. any of that. Yeah, because you get weird stuff that comes in on this. That, but it's all told very clinically. I mean, like for example, you know, there's a mention over and over again. He's the last autocrat in Europe. There's no like emphasis, like like okay, so he's exceptional as a monarch because. Uh, he actually has some sort of romantic feelings towards yeah. his wife, whereas none of the rest of them do. Um, that's sort of an indictment, a weirdo indictment of right. the other countries, I feel like. But then on the flip side, all the other countries have some kind of like actual legitimate uh, like parliamentary, uh, you know, advanced system right and he's like fuck the duma i don't i don't care I don't he didn't that. yeah he didn't even create one and and for a long time and then he created one and was completely like fake and didn't really have powers or whatever and so you know it's like i don't know maybe dwell on that a little bit but what <laughs> they kept doing with that aspect of it was they just painted him as like someone who just had bad advisors basically yeah like he kind of didn't really know what to do and so his uncle was in his ear being like you know, fuck him up, 
they'll always follow the czar. <laughs> and he's like, oh man, I feel like we can't do this today because 3,000 peasants just died yesterday in a stampede at our affair. He's like, no, nah, fuck them. You can't show, you gotta be an autocrat or whatever. Yeah. And like, so everything sort of gets absolved. Yeah. Um, the same thing it for goes like to great lengths. his military excursions, which all fail spectacularly. There's always like someone in his ear. But then there's also s- frequently someone else who's like, no, nah, no, nah, you can't do that, dude. Nah, dude, nah. it made his mother look like she had a hell of a lot of sense. <laughs> yes, his, well, his mother doesn't get killed. Yeah, she's um, like, if you abdicate, you better get out of Russia immediately. Yes. He's like, nah. Nah, I'm just going to live out in the country. I'm just, we're just going to go to a country house, fam. They even make the point that when the Romanovs are eventually shot, which is, uh, you know, a, an affecting scene because, you know, they have a bunch of daughters yeah. who are a- adults, teenagers, basically. But still, I mean, it's it's very disturbing. Uh, they're all wearing diamond encrusted underwear because they had taken all their jewelry with them to use to escape. Yeah, yeah they were going to use that to uh, get money while they were, you know... And one, they had told the guy, they had told them that they were being shipped out. Yeah. And so they thought that, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that that wasn't good, you know, obviously. But it, <laughs> but it's 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 framed as like, look how tragic, like they had hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, you're like, yeah, they also had their body weight in fucking diamonds. Yeah. And <laughs> they're, they're being guarded by people who are like former factory workers. Yeah. Um, odd series. Was weird. I liked it. I just sort of enjoyed it for its own sake. You gotta sake. take it as it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, and and they they did ultimately get their comeuppance. So you know. Well, I mean, yeah. To the extent in the that most you're extreme way possible. That that's what you're interested in. Then yeah. I suppose you got it. Um, though I didn't realize that th- there was this whole saga about the bodies and whatnot. Um, like, it, I don't know. It, it took them decades to find the bodies, even though they're just apparently buried out in the forest or whatever. Um. And then they found the bodies, and then they had some sort of state funeral for them, which was still under Soviet times, which seems a little weird. But maybe yeah. by that time they had sort of like chilled out about about the yeah. royalties since that was you know sixty years on, and they were like, oh, this will be nice. Pe- some people still remember the royalty, and you know it'll be like good for like the country or something. But um, well, uh, let us know what you think uh, if you give it a watch. Uh, Meanwhile, while that's going on, in parallel news, the Democratic Party is in a full-on meltdown. <laughs> yes. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I it's mean, crazy, and they, they seem kind of out of control. Nancy Pelosi is 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 uh, throwing bombs at uh, AOC, Clay, Omar, Presley, and Presley in the uh, in the New York Times. In the New York Times. Then her weird ass like comms guy or whoever the hell that guy is, Drew Hamill's like online melting down every day. They're also at the same time trying to pitch this line. Of, no, 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 no. What we we're just mad about tweeting. Like everyone always retreats to this sort of like content neutral objection to you know s- some sort of format or process or whatever you know. And like this is one of them. Is like no, we're just against you know. Don't air your grievances on Twitter, et cetera. Like that was a thing they were pushing for a while. And then today, the House Democrats Twitter account, which is weird because like I don't even understand how that works. Like, what what kind of enti- what kind of entity is the House Democrats tw- Twitter account? Like, who you know? What I mean? Cursed one, deeply like, who, cursed. Well, who 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 
who control i mean like obviously there's a person who tweets it but like as a as a sort of corporate matter how do you come to be the person who controls the house democrats twitter account and like what authority do you have to do that right you know what i mean like it's sort of conceptually weird it's not an organization it's just like and then like you're attacking the staffers. I feel like they should have to vote on every tweet. Right? Like this should be a public <laughs> deliberative thing or or there should be some, you know, is Pelosi just de facto because she's the speaker of the house? Um and therefore I guess in that sense the leader of the house Democrats. I mean to to um, to give a little timeline in case readers or listeners are out of the loop. Um yeah, Pelosi did an interview with none other than Maureen Dowd. Mm-hmm. Where Dowd is kind of giving her the Slay Queen treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dowd is like, uh, "This is Pelosi who literally clapped back at Trump during the State of the Union address." Of course, I guess Dowd missed the memo that Pelosi said she wasn't clapping back; she mm-hmm. was a hundred percent sincere in clapping for Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this whole interview unfolds, and Pelosi, like you said, kind of goes after. Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, AOC, uh, and Ilhan Omar saying like, look, they're just four people and maybe they have support on Twitter or whatever. Uh, but, you know, this is real life and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, what are they supposed to say to that? So uh, media outlets start asking uh, AOC for comment. And she says, you know, yeah, I think it's very disrespectful. Other people are saying, you know, why is Pelosi singling out four women of color who are progressives in her own party to attack? And of course, Pelosi is pissed because these four didn't like her border spending bill. Yes, yes. Right. That's the underlying uh, critique here is to understand that after all this, you know, justified hysteria, if you will, about mistreatment of immigrants uh, in the southern border. Just, just, oh, just wall to wall. This has been what the Democrats have been about for two or three years under Trump. After all of that is said and done, up comes a bill to pump more money into the agencies that are doing this stuff. That bill can come with any number of rules and restrictions and regulations, you know, to improve the conditions or do whatever you want. Or at least come with some kind of enforcement mechanism for the tiny little concessions they did get. Basically, Pelosi got Pence to agree they would notify Dems of all the children who died in their custody. Okay. And there's no enforcement mechanism for that. Yeah, I guess you would take them to the Supreme Court, I guess, and then (laughs) the Supreme Court will, uh, you know... But it's basically a blank check. I mean, there's no stipulations. It's nothing. It's rules. It, right. It's like after all of that, there's right. none. Of, and then, in, I don't know, what's bizarre about it is, you know, people would say, myself included, that this democratic outpouring towards migrants all of a sudden is, uh, I don't want to say cynical, but is it's just, you know, motivated by partisanship. And I don't mean that in a, I don't know, I don't want to sound sort of, you know, uh, David Brooksy or whatever about it, but the, Im- the migrants have been getting screwed in the country for years and years and years, including under Obama, who deported more people than Trump did. Right. Remember, we had that embarrassing spectacle where um, the Democrats on Twitter were sharing this link 
was sharing pictures of like kids in cages and stuff and then it turned out to they be they were from the obama the administration obama and and you see all this and you're like okay and it, you know i don't know it just seems sort of fake and bogus um even though it's a legitimate issue and then here we go okay you got some power now to do something this is a great moral evil um and we do nothing nothing and then you have a few uh, you have the sort of progressive block such as it is i don't know how why it's developed exactly like this but in the house there's the four right presley tlaibe uh aoc and uh omar and they are pushing about they're the only people all right all of them new to the house who are actually serious about this thing that house democrats have said they've been serious about for right two or three years these are all freshmen and so uh you know aoc responds yeah you know i think it's disrespectful that i'm getting attacked by the speaker of the house in the new york times in public uh for opposition to the conditions of this bill and and it's worth noting uh all of these women supported pelosi yes in the coup against pelosi Yes, no, right. I, I remember this very distinctly because, uh, you know, I don't know, I watched this unfold and I watched the various orgs sort of do their thing, you know, right. be like, we must support Pelosi and so on, really whipping hard, especially among progressives and so on. And and I didn't really say anything. I mean, you know, PPP, we don't really you know involve ourselves in those yeah. sorts of things. But, uh, you know, I just remember being at the times like, man. This is like this clearly is going to come back to bite you. Oh. And then what's funny is like it's just been a total disaster. Like not only from a progressive perspective, like of you know the left perspective on these kinds of things is she punching down, but even from like the resistance perspective where they're just really hot up about impeachment and uh, like that sort of like procedural stuff about like use the house to defeat Trump and that sort of shit. She's not doing any of that either. So like both right. the resistance moms and the far left are just getting punched every day by her. Um, and then it's funny. It's, I don't know. There's like no real organizational constituency for the way that she's doing or conducting herself. Um in the house. And so, you know, I, uh, I had my, uh, brief tangle with Nancy Pelosi's, uh, it's not her chief of staff, it's her deputy chief of staff. Mm -hmm. The assistant to the chief of staff. On Twitter. He, he got upset that I did a very, I think, a harmless joke tweet about the Maureen Dowd column. Mm hmm. And was like, you know, uh, are you not a reporter? Are you spreading false information? And I'm like, I'm sorry, it was a it was a very mild and innocuous joke. But now that you bring it up, I hate the interview for several reasons mm -hmm. uh, that are fully substantive and factual. Uh, but uh, another thing I started to notice, and it makes sense to insert it here in the timeline, is about three or four days ago, you started to see a bunch of interesting little postlets pop up at places like the Daily Caller and the uh, Washington Examiner conservative sites and then at USA Today, Time, and so forth about AOC's chief of staff, this guy named Saikat Chakrabarty. Oh, they're going in hard on him. They want to get him fired. They, they really, want to get him. really want him out. And you started yeah. seeing these posts about him wearing a t-shirt with Subhas Chandra Bose on it. And of course, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, and I apologize if I'm not. Uh, but a figure from uh, uh, Indian politics and, uh, you know, apparently had some sort of relationship uh, with 20th century fascists in some kind of fashion, but it's very complicated. 
the that's a deep cut. I, I don't know if I'd I'd bank bank on that to get him out. An extremely deep cut, and it's it's really very complicated, and you really have to know the politics and history of the region, which I don't. No, and no. and I sincerely doubt that any house dim who is trying to pitch this story to a bunch of outlets to get them to call uh, Chakrabarty a Nazi, which is what the effect of these stories was, know what the hell they're talking about either. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Washington Post global writer Ishan Tharoor was tweeting about it, and I would direct you to him uh, if you want some perspective on how inane this attack strategy is. But it signaled to me, even before uh, tonight's tweet, which we will talk about shortly, that, damn, they really want him out. And and the Post reported a Democrat aide saying, yeah, because Chagrabarty went so strong on this bill, this border bill, especially on Twitter, they really want him fired. Oh, yeah. That's and how so, Dems operate. They're real sickos. They love to get people fired. Like, let's let's not forget our our moment of unity in the uh, in the minority uh, in the opposition. That's like at the end of the day, uh, you try to stick your neck out even the least bit on the left, and uh, those uh, centrists who just love unity will absolutely cut your head off um, with with joy, with pleasure, and then they'll be sassy about it and and do. Uh, do fucking memes and shit about you know how they're just being like sassy golden girls you know taking out the trash or whatever it's really rough um, so tonight uh the house democrats twitter account tweeted uh let me get this up here uh a very exciting tweet uh <clears throat> they put up a screen cap of a tweet from Saikat Chakrabarty in which he said I think the point still stands. He's in a conversation. This is like taken media res. I don't think people have to be personally racist to enable a racist system. And the same could even be said of the Southern Democrats. I don't believe Sharice is a racist person, but her votes are showing her to enable a racist system. Mm-hmm. So he's referring there uh, to Sharice Davids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's saying explicitly, I'm not saying she's a racist. Yes. I just wouldn't vote. And don't think anybody should vote for bills that have racist impacts. Right. Well, th- this is the weird thing. So, you know, before you get into what the House Democrats said, if you present, you know, I mean, what aspect of this tweet would be objectionable? Right. He's explicitly think, saying, I'm not calling her a racist. I don't believe X is a racist person. Do you disagree? With, no. Okay. The House Democrats don't disagree with the claim. Right. That she's so not. You, do you do you, would you say that the immigration enforcement system is racist? I mean, did we not just do this for two, three years? So you would agree with that. Right. So, so there's no substantive disagreement if, on the on the face of it. If you it. gave this tweet to someone and you were like, find something to get furiously pissed off about from the point of view of House Democrats, they would be hard pressed. Right, and we just spent, oh God, we spent 2016 with all these just laborious, just dumb, just like 101 explainers that are like, let me tell you about this thing called structural racism. Right, Remember right. that shit? And it's like all these dumb libs who literally just Wikipedia'd it yeah. at, at, as, the center, as the center decided, you know, in that moment that they were going to sort of co-opt all the sort of like, uh, you know, woke language and stuff. Right, <laughs> right. Like, that was going to be their ticket. Did you know there's this thing called structural racism? And like, this is just directly in line with what supposedly even the centrists, in fact, the centrists are the great progenitors of this sort of analysis, right, supposedly. They, they completely co-opted um, this critique of structural racism yeah. where you don't have to be a racist person or yeah. whatever to be involved in racist systems. So that's all he's saying. 
So here's what the House Democrats, here's how they decided to run with it. You ready? Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? And why is he explicitly singling out a Native American woman of color? <laughs> Her name is Congresswoman Davids, not Sharice. She is a phenomenal new member who flipped a red seat blue, keep, clap, her, clap, name, clap, out, clap, of, clap, your, clap, mouth. Yes, and the claps are the brown the, hand emoji. Yeah, the clap emoji and the brown skin Not tone. the yellow emoji, which for some reason is unraced. Yeah. So it's like a Simpsons character. <laughs> yes, uh, that is the non-race. It's so incredible. what they decide to get pissed about is that he singled out Sharice Davids. Of course, he didn't bring her up. He was in a conversation with someone yes, else about someone her. someone else brought it up, and so he's conversing. But they clipped his tweet out of the conversation, so it looks like he just kind of tweeted uh, uh, you know, in response to nothing spontaneously about her, which is not what happened. He was in a conversation, and the other person in the conversation was calling her Sharice. Yes. So he was responding. Well, also, just, who gives a shit? I mean, who gives this a is shit? What, what do you, what do you, this was the same stuff that I saw. Again, we're going to go back to 2016, where there's this aspect of dims that are, are literally, they are boot licking, just sycophantic assholes. Right. This was a thing I hated a little bit by practicing law. I didn't really have to do this that much because thankfully my job as uh, that I got into was just like sit in a room and write briefs. You don't have to talk to anyone. But I did on occasion have to go to a court and it was like, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Like, this is just a guy, you know? Like, yeah. what? In, in this sort of pageantry of this. And you saw this with Hillary, where there was exactly this sentiment where, like, how dare you? How yeah. dare you speak of Hillary as if she is an equal to you? As if, as if you are peers in a democratic society where no one person is more powerful or more significant than another. How dare you do that? Right. And this is a god. What She's a god. Saying. This is a kazar right here you're talking to. A kazar. She's a kazongress <laughs> woman. What and you need to refer to her as the kazongress woman. <laughs> what they're saying with keep her name out of your mouth is literally do not speak her given name. Yes, this is, I think, what... It, a, it's not like... This is a reference to The Wire, I believe. It's um, a... I mean, typically when people say keep their name out of your mouth, they mean like don't refer to this person. But here they're actually using it in a literal sense, which is distinct from its typical <laughs> yeah, figurative I don't think, meaning. I don't think it could go that deep They're like, um, don't say Sharice under any conditions. I mean, quite literally, her name is not Congresswoman David. Uh, no one is named Congresswoman. It is literally Sharice. Um, the other aspect of this is just as even somewhat more hyster hysterical to me. Who is this guy and why is he explicitly singing out a Native American woman of color? As opposed so, to the non-woman <laughs> of color right, Native American. The Native American woman of color. It's like, this. what I love about this, and I, I'm sure we've gone over this before, everyone in D.C., in all the comm shops, in all the consultant shops, they all do this. None of them are serious about it. Not a single one. And it is, in some ways, you know, you hate to be the guy who's like, you know, you're really degrading the strength of this argument by overusing it all the time and that sort of thing. But it's like, literally, you have like activists who are very sincere about this and like, look, we need to center right. uh, Native American voices and the voices of women of color and that sort of thing. And you have this whole class in D.C. who realizes there's some like salience to that as like a rhetorical thing. And they just bludgeon you with it over and over again. And they don't care. Completely. Completely they don't care. It. And like you can tell they don't care because the phrase 
Native American woman of color. That is not a phrase you would use. That this is like an old person trying <laughs> yeah. to mimic yeah. activist. You know, it may not be super old, like in in activist worlds, being even just ten or fifteen years like out of it. It just <laughs> it know. so strongly suggests this is a workshop cynical. A, yes, and they do it yeah. over and over again, and it's so incredible. Where you have to like sit here. And like, just watch people go. Oh, did you know Native American woman of color? And like, and you can't just be like, ha, "You're full of shit. Shut the fuck up!" Like, you can't yeah. do that. You have to like be like, "Oh, okay." Like, you have to engage. Like, it's serious when you know everyone knows that person's not serious. I mean, for one thing, we're talking. I mean, imagine this this topic here. Imagine using trying to use this move in the context of this tweet. Yeah, Sackett is a person of color. Yeah. The underlying issue is one of immigration, yes. about people of color, and the person who they're accusing not of being a racist, but of doing a vote that enables a racist system, is also a person of color. It's all, pe- it's all people of color talking to people of color about people of color, right? and somehow you're kind of like the racist one. Right, like, right, right. What is this criticism? No, I mean, it's so insane, and like you just have to contend with it. You just have to. Like, it's completely crazy. I mean, if it's if he if, if Sackett is a racist for suggesting he's a racist because he's against racism, like that that is the the literal tweet is like sure is racist this migrant system, and he's like, excuse me, did you address a person of color? Right. Did you did you criticize? Excuse like, me. You if, are the if, racist. If Sekid is a racist, also for you're su- a for person su- of color, suggesting that Sharice Davids participated in a bill that had racist impacts, then certainly they're racist for calling him a racist because he's a person of color too. I do, they need to get his name out of out of out of the, their yeah. mouth. <laughs> I mean, but it, it's just like you it's said; it's so completely fake. cynical. And, and here's it's the like, thing: I, I do wonder at some point when is the page going to turn on this, and people just it's just like. <laughs> okay you just kind of wave it off like all right that guy you know it's like like people who still write in like 2008 internet style like Wonkat, you know and you just see it and you're like oh okay yeah, yeah we, you know we we did that for a while and then we kind of you know that's sort of lame and stupid and everyone realizes it's fake bullshit yeah um and i don't know maybe that time will never come but that is <laughs> just so <laughs> incredible to me. This is just such an obviously cynical abuse. And it's so cynical because it's like anyone who wasn't just just steeped in that mental illness of the discourse yeah. would look at this and be like, what? What are you even getting at here? This is ins- You're pissed he, that he used someone's first name? You're pissed that he used someone's first name. He's a person of color talking about racist immigration policies which you also agree are racist immigration policies and somehow he's the racist as a person of color objecting to racist policies because he used someone's first name right because he didn't use their honorific this by the way is the this is the left party in american politics who's like big into honorifics yeah that's what so crazy so crazy but it's like it doesn't matter the whole point is just to get the message out that the house dems don't like him try to put pressure on him to get him fired and so long as you can put up something that uh, feeds into existing sort of rhetorical libraries it doesn't matter if it makes any goddamn sense it doesn't matter if it makes any sense that's right. irrelevant that's not what, what it's about it's just you triggered a little you know uh, 
amazing, honestly. And I think that while it looks like it's about Pelosi being pissed about criticism or border bill, what I think it's actually about when it comes down to it, and this is a good setup for our discussion with Ryan, which is coming up, is here's the thing. Sackett is a part of Justice Democrats. Justice Democrats helped get AOC elected. Uh, they have other progressive candidates that you know and love, and they are an organization uh, that helps get funding to left primary challengers. Yeah, they're an open primarying org. Right. So what they're doing is they're bringing funding, they're bringing attention to primary challengers who are challenging establishment Democrats and winning their seats and going to Congress. And this is causing the Democratic establishment to absolutely shit their pants because here's the thing, and this is the important thing to remember. Left primary challengers are an existential threat to the Democratic establishment. Of Trump course. is not. No. McConnell is not. Kevin fucking McCarthy is not. None of these people are an existential threat to the establishment. They can lose yeah. and still I'll be continue. the minority leader. Right, right. It's they all can good. they can lose and keep doing what they're doing and and continue on basically with life unchanged for them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're not in the border facilities. They're not in the camps. Right. Life is unchanged for them. They're still just doing what they've always been doing. If they lose their seats to left primary challengers, life changes for them substantively. That's what matters to them. Yes. Right. So, I mean, for them, of course, right now, the real enemy they have to defeat are successful left primary challengers because they want to chill left primary challenges. They don't want those to continue happening because that's an existential threat to them. And they want to destroy organizations uh, that fund or enable through consultancy or whatever left primary challenges in democratic yeah, districts. That's why the DCCC that's why the has D said they're going to refuse yeah. to deal with anyone who helps primary challengers. This is all everyone circling the wagons to keep out the left flank of the party after, you know, by the way, they spend so many years telling us, come into the party, run in the primaries. Don't, don't run against us as independents. Don't go don't as a, a third spoiler. party. We want you here. You can try to win in a primary and you can advance bit by bit. Uh -huh. Right. I mean, yeah, this yeah, battle yeah. has been being waged for such a long time. Democrats in Pennsylvania went to prison for the things they did to keep Ralph Nader off the ballot. Right. So. And so this is a long running battle, as we will discuss with Ryan. It's been going since the 1970s, but it's really boiling over. Yeah, this is actually a great segue into Ryan because we talk about his new book. Right. We have the people. I think it's called We've Strong Arm people. Press. We've got the people. Um, and he, he goes all into this battle between basically the left of the party and the center of the and party. The center of the party. And, and, and you can um, really see it happening right now in public in a very obvious way. I guess the Democrat, uh, the, the establishment is panicked enough at this point that they're not trying to conceal it or soft pedal it. They're taking it public and they're asking essentially their constituents to get involved by arguing that these progressive challengers are improbably racists mm -hmm. against them. Yes. That's the tactic. they're taking. Color. Uh, so let's bring in Ryan and uh, I hope you enjoy our discussion. And now moving on to our guest, we have with us a veteran journalist, Intercept Washington Bureau Chief, uh, Ryan Grimm. Welcome. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming here to uh, to Chez Brew to do the <laughs> Brunig's podcast. Very high tech setup we have here. In it our is. No, we have a preamp. You know, we have the computer. <laughs> we have a laptop. Um, <laughs> it gets it. It gets it done. Windscreens. You know, <laughs> well, that's pretty, pretty, you know? pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> no sound from the outside. Walls. You know, kid currently at preschool. <laughs> uh, very high tech soundproofing technique there. Um, so Ryan is m- most recently the author of a really interesting book that I think if you're going to read about or write about or in any way be invested in the Democratic primaries this year is pretty necessary reading. And that is, we've got people from Jesse Jackson to AOC, the end of big money and the rise of movement. And this came out in late May. Yeah. What is what has the response been like from people on the Hill? Have you heard from sort of veteran Democrats as to what they think about it? I've actually, well, my favorite response was, and if if you've read the opening part, you'll get this. I saw Raul Grijalva in the Capitol, Mm -hmm. and he said, "Oh." Uh, some guys that tune in told me that your book is out. Uh-huh. I was like, that's perfect. <laughs> you guys that don't know, tune in is a bar on uh, Capitol Hill mm-hmm. uh, where the scene, the, uh, the first scene of the book uh, starts and Grijalva is there basically every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love that regulars at the tune in were talking about it. Um, yeah. Mark Pocan told me the other day that, that he's about halfway through it and enjoying it. So it, it's, it's nice to think that people, so people like Pocan, it's important. He got to Congress in 2012. He's yeah. now the, chairman co-chairman of the uh, congressional progressive caucus so he doesn't know exactly you know what what went mm-hmm. on in the capitol in 2006 7 8 9 10 mm-hmm. that can that that really ought to kind of inform how the progressive caucus um na- navigates the, the the next couple of uh, turbulent years but you know in the prologue and in the epilogue i kind of let you know what i think but for in the book itself i just kind of try to lay out what yeah. what happened mm-hmm. um and offer a couple of what ifs w- without um kind of putting my thumb too much on the scale so so the the kind of like establishment types have not have not objected to the book because there's mm-hmm. nothing there's nothing in the book that's wrong right it's all reporting and it's right. history and so the you know the basic narrative tells the story starting in well, roughly the 70s mm-hmm. about how we have Today's Democrats, how they came to be. So this is Pelosi, Schumer, these establishment figures that now feel like they're going to be there forever and how they got to power and then also traces the rise from, like you say, Jesse Jackson of a movement that we now probably associate predominantly with AOC, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, Rashida Tlaib. Mm-hmm. And so you're tracing a split there inside the party. And one thing I wonder about is, you know, we, uh, we've uh, discussed the Nancy Pelosi interview with Maureen Dowd in the New York Times that ran recently. And, and Pelosi seemed to argue that the idea of a big split in the Democratic Party or a meaningful one is a media narrative uh, that sort of created to inspire drama. So she, she has been pretty firm that this is something that the media is obsessed with, but isn't real. And then you have some other folks like Matt Iglesias saying, really the split is between the problem solvers caucus and the establishment Democrats like Pelosi, not between these progressives and Pelosi. So how do you respond to that? I mean, to this argument that the split isn't actually between progressives and establishment or that it's not real at all. Right. And that's another 
good reason for people to read the book because if they heard her say that, they 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 could think back to how she was first elected um, and her rise. You know, she she rose through California politics as a as a massive fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, she she and her husband lived in a mansion in in the Bay Area mm. that a, a congressman there. Uh, who was a kind of lion at the time, suggested this would be amazing for fundraisers. And she already had a um, a, a lot of political instincts and political skill from her for upbring- from her upbringing. So she becomes this this party operative through fundraising. And then when he dies, his wife takes his seat. she she survived two terms and she died. and then on her deathbed endorsed Pelosi mm-hmm. uh, in a, in the special election to replace her. Against him uh, or against her was, the vice chairman of Democratic Socialists of America in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, who was an openly gay uh, councilman named Harvey Britt, who had passed the first civil union law through so the, what through year the council. Was this? this is 87. Remarkable. Wow. And Diane Feinstein is the mayor at the time mm-hmm. and vetoed the civil union bill. She said oh it was too soon. San Francisco wasn't ready. Mm. Um, and so he ran his entire campaign with this. It was like a grass, you know, this a grassroots kind of DSA gay community effort with uh, the, the federal governments uh, ignoring the AIDS epidemic as kind of the major kind of organizing element to it. Um, and she, she won by, you know, a thousand votes or so very, mm. very close. And, and we see, elections like this in San Francisco today where it's the the realtors and the business community get behind one candidate and the kind of grassroots gets behind another one and sometimes one wins sometimes the other wins but in this case Pelosi won and so for her to suggest that there aren't two wings of the of that movement ignores how she got to congress you know she'll often say i'm from San Francisco you know i i know the left go yeah. she'll say go look in my basement and you'll find all these placards these medicare say, for all posters medicare yeah for all, single pair like yeah, but you know, you know the left from San Francisco from beating the left. Like you, you've taken them on, <laughs> right? Which is another, which is a way of a good way of getting to know, you know, an entity and a tendency. Um, but so, it, it's certainly true that there are these nettlesome problem solvers and other people to her right, uh, but they they fundamentally agree on the way to organize the party around around big money and and broadly moderate policies mm-hmm. uh they just disagree you know kind of around the edges whereas the 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 real threat from kind of the aocs of the world the squad is that they don't agree that you should organize the party mm-hmm. around corporate money and around big money mm-hmm. like they have a, they have a completely different organizing principle and that right. that is a real threat right now as she says it's just four of them right but if it were true that it's just four of them and they have no power and why on earth would the Speaker of the House be spending so much time worried about them? Right, and, and going up to them. <laughs> Giving so, quotes in the Times right. about them. <laughs> in the most generous terms possible, if you had to masquerade as a Pelosi Democrat, what argument would you make for structuring the party's priorities around corporate money, essentially? That it that it's successful, that it works, or? Yeah, so the, I mean, and the this was the argument that was made um, in the early 1980s after uh, and it's and it's not a terribly um, on its face awful argument at the time. Yeah. So, you know, Reagan wins mm-hmm. in 1980. He beats Jimmy Carter. Uh, Democrats lose 12 Senate seats. It's a, right. this huge wipeout, mm-hmm. and Republicans beat all of these liberal lions mm-hmm. um, around the country by outspending them on TV. Mm-hmm. You know that 
the Democrats were slow to catch up to this consultant world. Um, and, you know, in 1980, you're talking about the height of TV as, as a, uh, you know, a, a powerhouse in mass communication. Like that's, it's, it's still powerful. Uh, right. It can still move the needle, but at, at the time that, like that was it. And in the late seventies, you'd had some campaign finance reform decisions come out of the Supreme court that were as, as consequential as citizens United and Republicans exploited it. Democrats didn't. Mm-hmm. All of that was true. And so you had Democrats like Tony Quelo and, and others who said, look, what we need to do is match them dollar for dollar on the air. You know, we're mm-hmm. getting outgunned and we still control the House of Representatives. So we don't have to sell out. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is go to the banks, which at the time were not villains. This uh-huh. is pre-SNL. Yeah. You know, pre, this is a pretty sleepy sector at the time. And it was actually the one that didn't have any direct enemies. Mm-hmm. Like the, you don't want to necessarily go to the automakers for money, mm-hmm. corporate money, because the auto workers, you know, are a big base, etc. Yeah. Wall Street, there was no direct. I mean, uh, you know, organized labor was not opposed mm-hmm. to capital in a in a in an organized mm-hmm. way, and so they go to Wall Street. Um, they raise a ton of money, and in 1982, there's a blue wave. Mm-hmm. Reagan recession is going on. And it looks like they've kind of cracked cracked the code. Like, oh, so this like we were right. Like, you know, we're basically a pretty good party. You know, we won World War II. We did yeah. the whole New Deal. Um, and all we need to do is just moderate our message a little bit and raise a ton of money. Um, and they were validated by '82, uh, and so that by then they're kind of all in. Um, they're all on, on that idea. Mm-hmm. And so even though '84 is a wipeout uh there's always another midterm coming yeah you know, by 85 you know you start to get scandals mm-hmm. um reagan's starting to become less popular and iran contra starts kicking around so they pick up some seats in 86 and they think they're going to win the white house in 88 hope always springs eternal when you've got these midterms or the right, next right election the cycle is coming and so you're just mm-hmm. like let's just double down and do do what we did last time but just a little bit better mm-hmm. and for the forces that come out and try to argue in opposition like uh jesse jackson in 84 and 88 you just go to war with them yeah and so that's that's the strategy that they chose when you right. have these sort of defectors internal to the party like jackson will just steamroll them yeah and i guess the the best argument for it is at the time there just was no other way to raise the kind of money organized labor was in decline tapped out and also supporting some liberal republicans Mm -hmm. so they're just you had to go where the money was and there was no way to generate small dollars um in the way that you can on the on the internet now there was some direct mail, and, but but there was no kind of real organized effort to try to make a people-based party. That's that's a huge difference between between now between now and today. So the best argument would be, it's nice that you want to do a people-powered party, but you're just going to get swamped with negative advertising, and this yeah. is the modern era, and Republicans are just going to uh, dominate you if you don't yeah. go to corporate America for and 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 you know an, an, enough of a sector of section of rich America that's willing to give to you. So you you put this forward as a sort of split that opens up, this gulf in the party. And there was a piece, I think in 2016, that Matt Stoller did, I think shortly before the election, on the sort of transformation of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And I think he puts that transformation at exactly the time you document this sort of breach opening up. 
And he argues, well, uh, you know, Matt's very focused on uh, uh, monopoly power mm-hmm. and says, you know, uh, well, they were a populist party that was anti-monopoly and sort of anti-power concentration, and then they stopped being that. So is that just like a fraction of the picture for you? or it's a, No, that's a really important part of the picture. Yeah. Uh, the One of the big fractures of that populist coalition uh, came when the kind of Southern populists... Mm-hmm. You know, went all in on their white supremacy. You right, know, they, and, they, and these were segregationists, right. Right. Democrats, right? Right. So, uh, lest we whitewash, they they were they were segregationists. Yeah, yeah and there was a, th- and this was not an inevitable outcome. Mm-hmm. Like the Northern Republicans, kind of the business elite, mm-hmm. and the uh, the Dixiecrats uh-huh. down in down in the South were not natural allies. First of all, they right. had the Civil War history that was mm-hmm. much fresher in the forties and fifties. Um, but secondly, they they fundamentally didn't agree on issues like social security and taxation and yeah and you, other you used populism. to have an odd breed my grandfather was uh from childress texas uh itinerant farmer growing up in oaky right and never voted republican his whole life if for one because abraham lincoln mm-hmm. was a republican <laughs> and that was a big problem for southerners but also weirdly in, in a strange combination you don't really see that much anymore because he was an fdr guy mm-hmm and believed in social security and the new deal and and i feel like you hardly have that anymore you know the southern strategy worked it took from the 30s up until the 60s for them to finally pull off this fusion of the the business republicans and and the dixiecrats and they and they ultimately were able to accomplish it around around federal power it was the the only thing that they could agree on was federal power and the way that the the republicans would um, euphemize it was to say we're against regulation and taxes and yeah. so we're against a, uh, an, uh, you know, an overarching overreaching fed- federal government yeah. and the southerners would say well we're for segregation yeah. and we're for Jim Crow and so therefore we don't think federal power should be strong either so they, they, they allied around that where it, which allowed the republicans in the north to pretend that they weren't espousing racist ideas there's this amazing um national review uh essay by william buckley that just straight up says this Uh um that um that then gets uh condemned in the next week in the national review Uh because it was it was the only time that they'd publicly said out loud like specifically that that the northerners were comfortable with white supremacy and that the southerners had a right um, to engage in their white supremacist beliefs, um, they're like, no, no, no. And so in, the ne- in the next week, they're like, that's not how we talk about this. Yeah. But so, so that's so that's the part, the part that is part of what Matt's talking about. But that's why they were able to cleave those those elements apart. And so this creates a Democratic Party that is sort of just fundamentally different in character than it was before. And in some ways. You can think of it as an improvement, right? At least getting rid of a segregationist mm-hmm. element is a good step. An important move, which is something that we're having to debate at this point because yeah. of <laughs> because of Biden's uh, uh, entry into the race. Um, but on the other hand, you lose at the same time, and not necessarily like it didn't right. have to happen. This populist <laughs> element, and so that made me wonder. You know, how would you describe? what it means to be a Democrat now. Like, what is that identity like 
now with the party having mm-hmm. been through what it's been through since 1970. So it's it's transforming in a fascinating way, I think, thanks to people like Ilhan Omar and, uh-huh. and Ocasio-Cortez uh, and Rashida Tlaib. Um, and it's finally becoming cool again. Like mm-hmm. they're, it, it, what, what, what they are doing is they're, they're creating room inside the party for people who have radically different ideas about how to move forward than, than Chuck Schumer. Right. You know, and, and, I, and I get into the book that in, in 2000, for instance, uh, this, this didn't really exist. And so a lot of people from my generation supported Ralph Nader. In the, oh, in the 2000. <laughs> the so Nader campaign, campaign man Nader here. Nader campaign there. Yeah. Um, because no, it seemed hopeless. The Democrats seemed hopeless at that right, point. It, so. it, it did. It did. So if you were young, you were involved in the anti-globalization movement and supporting Ralph, Ralph Nader. Uh, you know, that gets interrupted a bit by two, September 11th and then the right. anti-war movement. Um, but it kind of, that it, that thread runs back then through Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but, Ocasio-Cortez winning in an unapologetically leftist fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's far enough away from the, the, the Cold War. She can call herself a socialist and young mm-hmm. people are cool with that. I remember when I was young, it was not, it, socialist wasn't cool. Socialist was like East Germany and yeah, yeah. Romania and, or and like lame. Uh, and like, even, even in the activist circles, it was like... Anarchy. Uh, the, like the, well, there was so for young people, yeah, anarchists. That was right. even the same when I was in college. Everyone was an anarchist who was on the left. But then among like, to the extent that there was organized socialist groups, it was all like 50 and 60-year-old men yeah. just sort of... Just hanging arguing on. with <laughs> each other about weird... Old sectarian like, stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was completely it lame. Was, it was like stodgy enough. That I remember when we were in high school, or I, we, you might, you were in college. I was still in high school, mm-hmm. uh, and we were we were together at the time. We had gotten together in high school. I remember talking to you, having this conversation, and being like, you know, I kind of think of myself as a socialist, and I've always been the stodgier and more buttoned up of the two <laughs> of us. And and you were like, yeah, I don't have any problem with the label. It just doesn't have any traction in politics right now. Uh, and then that started to change. I mean, yeah. you know, because uh, yeah, at the time Matt was uh, he was a Gravel teen, I believe, and then <laughs> and then a Nader teen. Gravel, Kucinich, Nader. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. hanging on the left end of, of things <laughs> yeah. as much as I could. But at the time, none of them called themselves socialists, right? Um, Nader Bernie. did at one point call himself a social democrat. Uh, yeah. So that's as far as he would go with it. <laughs> but so so what do you think is going on with the critique you see of, of Bernie Sanders that he's not a real democrat? I think a lot of that is bots actually. Yeah. Um you don't I, think it's an organic meaningful I Im- don't I don't no. think so. Yeah. Um Certainly Democrats like him in polls. Uh, he has very high right. favorability and all the rest of it. So. Right. So if you, if you, right, if you talk to human beings uh, over the phone, they'll tell you, yeah, that they, that they like him personally and that they like his general policy ideas. Um, I, I really do think that there's this, like, so whenever you have enough, enough of a troll army that's pushing a talking point, you're going to get actual human beings who see it yeah. and adopt it them themselves yeah so it's not to say that 100 percent of the people knocking bernie for not being a democrat um are trolls but i think that's essentially where it comes from kind yeah. of a corporate democratic factory that produced that idea i i just like to point i i usually just screenshot the democratic leadership senate uh-huh. senate leadership website which has him on it 
Yeah, yeah. I was like, he's a member of Senate Democratic. It's ridiculous, actually. There's like 11 people yeah. in Senate Democratic leadership, yeah. and there's what 49, right? 48. And, and he ca- he's caucused like, with Democrats for right. So he's caucused with them, I mean, and he's in their leadership. So and he's running for the primary, like right. And also, and so Ocasio Cortez is fixing some of this, but not all of it. But you know, partisan. Uh, identity is declining across the board both you know republican yeah. and democratic mm-hmm. so if you can get people behind uh the same ideas mm-hmm. um and open them up to to being for you and one of the ways you do that is by saying you're not a democrat then do that what democrats are what 30 plus percent of, right. of the country like why would you not want to just be open to the 70 or 60 plus percent of the people that don't aren't registered as Democrats. Right. And it, it, I mean, I wonder if you see sort of evidence of your thesis here in that when you look at how Bernie polls being an, you know, lifelong independent Democrats don't really seem to care. And I mean, that that's probably evidence of like, is a weakening partisanship across the board, but it also seems to be evidence of the idea that there are people who identify as Democrats or who identify with the democratic party who have serious criticisms of what their party is doing yeah. or, or have a, have a real problem with it. Do you think that democratic leadership is cognizant of that? That's a good question. <laughs> um, like, wh- I mean, they, they, they look at polls. Yeah. They look at election results, you know, so they, they know, they know they have problems and, you know, in certain districts, the Democrat will very much try to hide the fact that they're a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the national democratic organizations, try to solve that problem by pretending to be Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, we'll write stories all the time saying like, so-and-so DCCC recruit was a Republican two years ago. Yeah. And at first we, I kind of thought we had them, had them busted here and there like, Oh wow, they're going to see this and realize that they made a mistake. And then I realized, no, 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 this is, this was a feather in the cap of this person. They weren't had, it was intentional. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they 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 think like oh they used to be a republican recently so they'll be able to identify with these foreign species of they love to they voters. love to uh, put up uh ex military ex police mm-hmm. ex cia and anything uh, sort of uh, martial in nature they really they, they they think that's how you uh that's how you get to the to the the republican rubes out there and they found a few who are prosecutors in the military Ooh, that's like, a really yeah checking off all the boxes yeah. there yeah that's amazing that's a unicorn yeah. <laughs> that is. no i mean so uh the statement i got from the DCCC when i asked them why they were supporting juanita perez williams mm-hmm. in syracuse when all of the local democratic parties all the indivisible groups had been backing dana balter the statement was something like uh juanita is a prosecutor uh, she's a veteran she's a latina amazing there you go Just, that's all you statements need. Statements of facts. Yeah. What like, more do you want? Oh, yeah. yeah. What's wrong with you? What more? <laughs> I had a slight uh, contretemps with the D trip uh, after their uh, blacklisting rule. So uh, they put out a uh, you know, as you know, and the Intercept reported on more than anyone. Uh, the D trip mm-hmm. decided that primary challengers uh, were going to get or vendors who worked with primary challengers. So these are like people who do polls, campaign stuff. We're going to be blacklisted from working with uh, incumbent Democrats, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to put them out of business and try to kind of choke out the economy that supports primary challengers from the left. And as you pointed out in a piece today, 
they're facing a huge number of primaries, right? And, right. and that, that seems to be, again, evidence of your argument that there's this kind of rising wave now now that it's possible. And I want to ask you why you think now is the time that that is kind of rising. But but uh, yeah, this this is not an interesting ending to this story. I just wrote a column saying that I didn't like their black. No, no. Well, thing. well, one of the interesting tidbits <laughs> of it was they put that out alongside a separate uh, a statement, I guess, maybe even the same text that was like, uh, also, we're doing a diversity initiative. Yeah, it was part of their diversity initiative yeah, announcement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah but it and seemed like it seemed like they recognized like oh wait a minute this is actually at odds with the diversity because so, you know the, the representatives in congress are still quite you know, I, I old and white and male essentially saying you know i this is bad news it's, it's a direct attack on the left wing of the party uh and i got some communication from the d-trip itself saying why didn't you include our diversity initiative yes why didn't why didn't you include this obvious uh, pr effort to uh, sort of distract a little bit about the practical effects of this we, anti-incumbency we had a little argument about yeah. that but, but but so why is now the moment for these primary challenges why is now the moment that the d-trip has to do that well i think the sanders campaign had a significant amount to do with it and in, mm-hmm. in in bringing people into the party who started to have the idea that oh the, you, you could actually work within this party to try to to try to fix it and take it over rather than trying to run as run as third party mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who specifically got involved in politics mm-hmm. because of Bernie Sanders um, are precisely the ones who are now out recruiting uh, training and mm-hmm. and backing a lot of a lot of these challengers Th- there's a real parallel with the 84 and 88 Jesse Jackson campaigns in that those campaigns brought people into politics like Luis Gutierrez mm-hmm. and a, 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 an extremely long list of people mm-hmm. um, who were not like political operatives or political activists looking for a campaign. These were just Luis Gutierrez was a social worker in Chicago uh, who got inspired by the by the Harold Washington camp, mayoral campaign that Jesse Jackson ran basically. Um, and then he volunteered on the the Jackson campaign so it, it brings a different kind of person into politics and so the Bernie campaign brought in for instance uh, Alexandra Rojas who's mm-hmm. now the head of Justice Democrats Shroykat Chakrabarty who co-founder of Justice Democrats who's now AOC's chief of staff Corbin Trent was part of the Bernie Sanders campaign mm-hmm. he was running food trucks in Tennessee um, he was not going to join the O'Malley campaign but then yeah. the Sanders campaign called him back the Sanders campaign, in fact, had to hire people like Shoycott Rojas, who was a community college student, um, and Trent, because the pros, the operatives in Washington, wouldn't work for the Sanders campaign. Mm-hmm. There were even some basic vendors mm-hmm. um, who weren't working with the Clintons, but refused to work with the Sanders campaign because the Clintons are are so known for their the vengeance that they'll take and the way right. that, the way that they. Uh, tightly hold it's, on it's to the power. same in the the policy world uh when he would as far as i understand try to reach out to think tanks and that sort of stuff to like oh you know help me whip some of the stuff up to completely frozen out right right and so as a result y- you have to do some creative things and find some new kinds of people and new people get involved mm-hmm. and though you know and corbin is now aoc's uh spokesman on, on the hill um, and the, the list goes on and on of interesting people who were sucked into politics by that campaign who are now doing, continuing to do in, interesting things. And so they're going to look for new ways to, to break in. And that often means primarying somebody. 
So do you think that the D-trip is, and not just the D-trip, but just Democratic leadership in general are going to continue this fight? Is there a point at which they say, this is an insurgency that's not going away? It's not just four people, like Pelosi has been saying. Is that point going to come? Only if they're beaten, it looks like. Mm -hmm. Like they they have, I kept thinking that they were going to try to make nice, Mm -hmm. sue for some type of peace and do this together, but... um, they, you know, they're they're all in on this fight. Um, for Sherry Bustos, who's now the DCCC chair, you know, it it appears quite ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, and, you know, and some of it's comical. She's health insurance uh, executive. You know, that was her career, and now she's running the DCCC. Her husband's the, the the local sheriff, and they're like a big power center back home. Um, and they they just see uh, the conflict as kind of existential. Um, and the fact that the vendors are, it's fine to work with vendors who work with corporations who are, you know, acting, you know, against democratic interests. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's working with the primary candidates that, that uh, finally crosses the line. But it, it, it seems like it might end up producing its own industry of kind of insurgent consultants. Because yeah. you do need consultants because like a campaign is a short-lived thing. You need somebody to file your FEC reports. Right. You're not born knowing how to do mailers mm-hmm. and how to like get them in the mail and in the right mailboxes. So like you need you need people who have that expertise and the, what the DCCC is threatening to do is create an entire industry of those people who then owe nothing to the party itself. Yeah. So they're intensifying their... It could uh, backfire yeah. tremendously. Yeah, they're, they're Heightening sharpening the contradictions. The <laughs> I, <feel like, laughs> I, I kind of feel like going back to Matt Stoller, that there's uh, some sort of antitrust problem with this. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. Maybe there are political exemptions. <laughs> Legally. But how can you uh, refuse to deal with a whole group of people, uh, you know, based on these sorts of considerations? That would so. be a real case to bring. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, PPP might have its next big project here. <laughs> no, we don't do... Uh, uh, you don't do <laughs> litigation. Don't do lawsuits, no. <laughs> um, so that, that's really interesting. So, I mean, for people who are still backing the Sanders campaign, or, you know, I mean, do you see Elizabeth Warren as being on the other side of things? Because she seems to have a good relationship right now. Yeah, and she, I mean, she was the uh, she was there in an interesting way on this tip mm-hmm. before Sanders was. So Sanders has always, you know, he's been, he was elected in 90 right after the, um, right after the Jesse Jackson 88 mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, well, he ran an 88 loss, ran a yeah. one in 90. Um, he immediately co-founded uh, with Pelosi, I think, uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, mm-hmm. which is, oh no, she wouldn't have been there till 87, so it wasn't with her. Maxine Waters was one of his co-founders. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's been there on the left so since since 90, um, but he wasn't kind of an active participant in like the coalition politics within the House and the Senate. And I think that's, that's something that people love about him, um, mm-hmm. that he was kind of above the fray and this kind of, uh, you know, moral voice, uh, but that meant that he he wasn't uh, a factor when it came to say the Affordable Care Act or Wall Street reform. Or, um, you know, he had some some accomplishments. He pushed through uh, an audit the Fed measure. Um, you know, he he made the moral case for you know breaking up the banks, which certainly pushed uh, Wall Street reform in in the right direction. He did get some money for community health centers, um, but. 
but he's not up in the mix. Like mm-hmm. when Larry Summers, for instance, was floated to be Fed chair, mm-hmm. it was Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley mm-hmm. who organized the opposition and, and killed that. Mm-hmm. It was, that, that wasn't the kind of thing that Sanders saw mm-hmm. as, as his role in the Senate. Whereas Elizabeth Warren, as a professor in, you know, from 09 mm-hmm. to 12, and then as a senator after that, really went head to head with the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Like she, she would call them out, she would name names. Even in 2017, um, when there was an attempt, and a successful attempt to roll back some of Dodd-Frank, she sent out an email um, naming all of the Senate Democrats uh, who were co-sponsoring this, um, this Dodd-Frank rollback, which led to a, a shout, shouting match in this chief of staff's meeting and a, uh, a ton of pushback against Warren, but she stood her ground. She's like, I'm not going to. Dodd Frank's my thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by that. Whereas you don't actually see Sanders naming names. Mm-hmm. Like he's good at like identifying the class mm-hmm. interests that the uh, left is up against and that need to be defeated. The insurance industry, the one percent, um, and so on. But he's not going to call out John Tester mm-hmm. um, or Joe Manchin mm-hmm. so much, which is which is interesting because it it's it's not how you kind of think of those two. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that changing? I mean, Sanders listed his anti-endorsements uh, yesterday, and of course, they're not Democratic exactly. Party leadership. Exactly. They're they're corporate or they're members of the Trump administration or you know um, you know billionaires of different types, donors. He very much could have listed mm-hmm. um, some some elements of Democratic leadership mm-hmm. and put some quotes of theirs yeah. up there. The, the fact that he didn't shows mm-hmm. that he you know he. And I, this is not a criticism. Maybe this is the way to do it. Um, but it shows that he wants to be a team player. Like yeah. he still sees himself as part of the team. He, you know, he held back his Medicare for all introduction mm-hmm. at the request of Schumer, so that they could, so that it wouldn't. Schumer thought it would step on their defense of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, and Bernie was fine to do that. You know, he's fine Maybe to like meet with Schumer and mm-hmm. and suss out strategy mm-hmm. um, in in a way that. Uh, belies the kind of uh, bomb throwing. But ultimately um, you think it's going to be a matter of primarying and beating this part of the party. Right. And so that's that's the problem. You mm-hmm. you have to work with them mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis and then you have to beat them in primaries. So it's yeah. it's a very difficult thing to hold up. And uh, AOC's approach of her, like she hasn't endorsed these primary challenges, but yeah. her whole staff has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, and so the, you think that's a deliberate sort of way to kind of split the baby? It's an attempt. Yeah, I don't think it works. Yeah. No, nobody, nobody, you know, all of the Democratic caucus thinks she's there to burn the thing down. Yeah. Even though she, no matter how many times she will say that she's not there to burn the whole thing down, and she mm-hmm. wants to work with everybody to, to like solve the existential problems that are facing the country, they just believe that she's going to uh, take them all on. So it doesn't matter what she Do says. Do it, girl. Burn it down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, she I'm seems to her. act as a kind of exemplar, like whether she's out there actually, um, you know, doing anything, just being a figure who primaried Crowley, successful, has this big voice. That by itself seems like people see it. They go, shit, I'm going to do that. Like, they just yeah. don't, I don't right. know that she, she that have seems a whole to be her room. biggest impact yeah. is yeah. just and, and being the, who she is. The fight yeah. has come to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pelosi's Dowd interview, there was no way AOC could just ignore that. And, and and she hasn't. She said, you know, I think it's very disrespectful. I think it's divisive. 
And mm-hmm. I think she's right. So, I mean, with that kind of commentary going back and forth, it seems hard to imagine how we're going to avoid just having this fight. It's going to have to happen. Right. And there was no, like people have, people will say on Twitter, like, oh, why didn't she start at the city council level or something like sure. that? It's like, you don't understand the way that these machines control politics. Yeah. Like that, what that, that also was not an option mm-hmm. and it's not an option in a lot of these, these blue areas where mm-hmm. the party establishment, you know, controls the, the, the rungs of power from the, from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to get in line and, you know, in, in both meanings of the term, mm-hmm. if, if you want a place there. So if, if you want to, um, run on what you believe in you have no choice but to but to take on the the established incumbent like a like a joe joe crowley and face all that money and all that power do you think that there is i mean this is kind of an extraneous question but do you think that there is a an element of party machine tinkering going on in queens right now with the da race well they finally um got their act together and pulled out you know three four thousand absentee ballots yeah like that that's like that's what machines are for yeah is uh producing votes out of thin air yeah um or you know knowing who what all the nursing homes are and all the like yeah um locked buildings that only the machine can get into and pass Mm -hmm. around absentee ballots um like that's what they're supposed to do like Mm -hmm. the and but they're not very good at doing it anymore so Mm -hmm. they got they got some of those ballots out and we'll see they may still have situation rigged enough that they can uh, pull pull this one off but crowley knew that he was in a tight race mm-hmm. and the most he could get out to the polls was nine thousand people wow in a 700 plus thousand district so that suggests that the machine doesn't really deserve to be called a machine anymore so at the end of the day you still need the people right you need some people and <laughs> like, he spent three or four million dollars we have people right and yeah, that, she that, had more. Yeah, yeah. ultimately is going to be what the left wing of the party has to marshal yeah. uh, to win this fight. Ryan Grimm, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here.